Welcome to the On It Podcast. I am your brand new host, Kyle Kingsbury. Uh, you can give, go ahead and give me a listen over on uh, some of the other podcasts. Uh, Joe Rogan, episode 756, I believe, which is still on YouTube. Might be harder to find going through iTunes. But I um, uh, also did a great episode with Aubrey Marcus. I believe it was episode 114, talking about Burning Man and some fun stuff. This podcast is, is going to be fairly similar to what it was before, is Total Human Optimization. I have been uh, given the job title Director of Human Optimization, so it's a good fit. We're going to talk a lot about health and wellness on this show. Uh, we're also going to bring in fighters and elite-level athletes that I believe have transcended sport and really shown uh, something that's more important than just being talented at what they do. And Uriah Faber, who will be our first guest, is one of the people that really embodies that to me. And um, I had a great episode with him. He's a good friend. I hope you guys enjoy it. All right, here we are. Mr. Uriah Faber. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you doing this. Yeah, man. I'm pumped. It's been fucking it's been a minute. We actually haven't had time to really sit down and uh and shoot the shit. So this is perfect. Man. Yeah, as they say, the podcast is the the most genuine conversation because there's no one else around. There's no distractions. Yeah. The, here we are. We're sitting in the palms. Uh they locked all the doors because apparently people try to kill themselves or something in, in Vegas or Yeah, there's there's no on. balconies. Yeah, it's kind of all the degenerate me. gamblers. So we're stuck in here, dude. There's no getting out. Now this might this might go for a while then. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I was rolling up this morning, and uh, the Palms place, and apparently Floyd Mayweather has like the whole top floor or something, and he's getting like out his of his entire car. fight camp or forever. Just him. No, is it, for, is it just for the fight camp. No, or is he it like owns all, one of these. No shit. Yeah, and I every time I come here, I see the Team Money Train uh, cars. He's got like three of them out there. And so I see him, he just, just him by himself getting out of his car. And I'm like, I was on a phone call. I'm like, Floyd, what's up, man? He's like, hey, what's up? And then, you know, he's like, oh, you, you, you're a fighter, this and that. And I had to remind him, we met like 13 years ago in a 24-hour fitness at like 12 o'clock in the morning. And uh, he was playing a one-on-one -on -one basketball game with Zab Judah, someone I think he beat up in a fight. And uh, we had a conversation back then. It was right when I was getting started, but. Kind of crazy, man. This is a crazy world we live in. Oh yeah, I heard Zab's pretty down with MMA. Like he's he's got yeah. a lot of friends. He pays attention. Well, he wrestled in high school, and then his dad was a kickboxer. His dad was like a professional kickboxer. Oh, and he wow. was a boxer, so he wrestled. He's a boxer, and his dad's a kickboxer. So, that's, yeah, he he yeah likes he's it. fairly well rounded than yeah. himself. Yeah, absolutely. He's got two two of the three big big uh big pieces there. Yeah, that's funny. You know, uh, who you wouldn't know. But I think for celebrities, you always think about celebrities that could jump into our sport. And Mario Lopez was a state placer in high school, which is better than I did in wrestling. And he boxes and spars with the pros at uh, uh, Wildcard in L.A. So that Wildcard, dude, is, that, is, that, um, is that Jay Glazer's gym? No, that? that's, okay. uh, that's where Manny Pacquiao trains. Oh, no shit. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Mario so that's uh, no Freddy's Freddy spot? Freddy Roach, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So uh, he's been doing that for years. And plus oh, AC Slater. Yeah, Slater's no joke. Yeah, bro. I remember him putting the singlet on and Saved by the Bell. Yeah, dude. <laughs> too funny. That's awesome. Yeah, he's, awesome. he's you know what, it's funny because I, anybody you grow up watching, you kind of root for, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. And he's like, uh, it doesn't matter what that guy does, he's always going to be on TV. 
Yeah. Like always. That guy's yeah. always flipping through the channels and then like he's on some fucking celebrity game show. He's on E Entertainment he's every on all day. Kinds like of shit. as the screensaver on a hotel room. He's always popping up. Yeah, he's everywhere. Yeah. He's he's he's, he's he and I have the same manager, Mark Schulman, so oh, so give Shulman yeah. a little shout out for Shulman, that. yeah. So you yeah. obviously you're doing pretty good if you got the same manager as AC um, Slater. We're working on it. it takes some time. <laughs> That's awesome. So You've been on a shit ton of podcasts. You know, everybody in the fight game knows who you are. I don't really want to go too deep into the story of Uriah Faber, but, you know, anytime I have a fighter on this podcast, I want to ask him about what was the driving force that really made you want to fight professionally? You know, it's kind of interesting because as a competitor, I wrestled. I always wanted to fight. I was all, all my favorite sports growing up. All my favorite movies were mixed martial arts related. You know, Van Dam, Bruce Lee, Chuck Norris, uh, you know, th- those are my guys. And then boxing was my sport. And I remember when the first UFCs started in 94, uh, you know, I used to watch them religiously. It was like the Super Bowl, even though they hardly ever finished a tournament. So I've always had like kind of an inclination. I think I had showed some interest in boxing. But my parents are smart. And never let me get into it. Like, do not get hit. You know, in the when head. your kid shows <laughs> interest in something, they could either be like, "Oh yeah, here you go," and let me help you find the way, or just like kind of snuff it. And so, I think I had a little desire to get into some combat sports. And then when they offered wrestling in junior high and high school, I just was drawn to it. I was football, wrestling, and for me, mixed martial arts was a continuation of wrestling. I graduated college. I was top twelve in the nation. They had Indian casinos at the time because it was illegal in California. Mm-hmm. And that was the only place they had fights. So uh, I basically like was fighting to try to even get myself scheduled to, to take a fight. They didn't have weight class for me at the time, so I had to fight at 155s. I got paid 200 bucks to win. The promoter had hung up on me. And I don't know. I just wanted to do it, you know, for whatever reason. I, I mean, I always kind of felt like the sport would blow up. And I didn't know what that looked like necessarily. I didn't, you know, you can't really envision what it would really look like. But I always had faith in the sport, so I had the first fight, and then just was kind of hooked after that. How'd that first fight go? It was easy. Yeah. It was. <laughs> I mean, the guy was the guy was another wrestler. He wrestled in junior college, a place in junior college, and he was uh, had a couple more fights than I did. Charlie uh, Jay Valencia was his name. Mexican cat, bald, tattooed pride across his stomach, and. And uh, I remember walking out of the cage and just thinking, what the fuck am I doing, man? Like, what did I sign up for, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it wasn't like a real popular thing at the time. It was it was just getting going in the UFC and everything. And then once the door shut, it was like game on. And I had so much fucking fun. It was a minute and a half. My dad was in the front row. I, he popped up and was screaming. And I remember smiling at him and throwing the guy on his head and, and choking him out with like a minute and a half. And just like, I was like, ah, oh, this is it, dude. Hooked ever since, yeah. right? And I made 500 bucks. To me, I was going to substitute teach. I graduated college. I was going to be a substitute teacher. And I'm like, you know, I was going to get paid, what, 12 bucks an hour or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I just made 480 bucks, 200 bucks to show up, 200 bucks to win, like $70 worth of ticket sales, 20% of ticket sales. And all the promoters do in the low-level shows. They're like, you're going to make your money in ticket sales. Yeah. Sell the stands out for me. Yeah. So I I, I sold like 30 tickets in a short period of time because it was a short notice fight. And uh, ended up making 500 bucks a minute and a half. And I'm like, fuck, that was awesome, dude. And it oh, was yeah. like two fights later, I was making like two and 3,000 bucks because I was selling so many tickets. And, and I'm like, you know, I can make this work. 
Was this with uh, King of the Cage when you first started? It was Gladiator Challenge. That's right. And, and they then, were uh, like sister companies, right? Yeah. Okay. So they had King of the Cage and Gladiator Challenge, and King of the Cage had like a low-level pay-per-view set up where it was like hardly any pay-per-view, but it would you – know, they'd have a, at least an outlet for it. And so that I would I would actually get paid more on the shitty little Gladiator Challenge show than I would in the King of the Cage because it was like, oh, you're going to fight on pay-per-view – Oh, you'll get more cool. sponsors, right? Yeah. The, uh, they the just, it was like, you know, they were shisty dudes. Mm-hmm. You get like $1,000 flat, but it was never a local fight. And so the local fights, you could sling all sorts of tickets. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I remember fighting in like Globe, Arizona, out in the middle of nowhere. And they're like, oh, you're from Arizona. We're going to give you an Arizona fight. Because I was still at a, a yeah. fighting near ASU. And uh, we went out to Globe. And <laughs> the only tickets I sold were family members that were willing to travel like Pretty much out in the middle of nowhere in the desert yeah. there. I fought Globe too. Yeah. I fought Charlie Valencia. Apparently Dominic Cruz was in the in the in the crowd that night and he lurking told me in the shadows. Later. Yeah, he was like lurking and he's like, I knew I was gonna fight you someday when I saw you. he told me that like years later. I'm like, God, you creep. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was telling Tosh the other night, um, when I first got into it, I was in Rage in the Cage local AZ promotion and I had a really good striking coach. I should have stayed with him longer. Great guy. But um, he wanted to take me to like a bigger show. And King of the Cage was, you know, maybe one or two steps above that. So I was doing well in the local show. And we go to a King of the Cage. And I forget where it was. It might have been in Laughlin or maybe it was Globe. But uh, we get out there and uh, we're watching the fights. And he's like, all right, you know, scope the competition in every weight class because this is the next level. This is what you're going to have to get your game to to move up. Yeah. And we're watching. And then we saw you come out. And he's like the California kid and the long hair and everything like that. I I can't remember. It it might have been somewhere like that. But we're watching you fight. And he's like, that dude is not at this level. He's at the next level. He'll be be something (laughs) special. You know, and we were both like, fuck yeah, dude. He is going to be something special. It was rad. That's awesome, brother. I appreciate that. I think that was the fight where I fought Charlie Valencia. And that was like a monumental fight. And that fight, there's if you guys look it up, whoever's listening, look up Uriah Faber, Bali, Indonesia, the story. After that Charlie Valencia fight, I took like the my first ever vacation to Indonesia. And that's where I got legendarily jumped by like twelve Indonesian dudes and almost died. And it was and my whole life, you're probably like this too, but like people ask me what, what when things were, it's all relatable to a fight. Oh, that was right before this fight and I can look up on Sherdog and see what date <laughs> it was and whatnot. So that Charlie Valencia fight was in Globe where I where where you you're probably talking about. I think Don Fry was there. He was uh, drinking beers and and about to, you know, fight someone also on the same show. And um, and then I went straight out to Indonesia and almost lost my life to like twelve angry bouncers at a, at a club. <laughs> Watch that. It's a ten minute story. You don't want to hear it, but it's pretty wild. <laughs> you don't want to hear it, but definitely look it up and listen. Yeah, look at it. You don't want to hear it right now because it's, it's it's a long freaking story. But you made it out alive. I they made it pretty, out alive. They have good, decent uh, hospital care there for oh you. Oh my gosh! Everybody in the hospital is in flip flops. I got seven spots sutured on my head with yarn and cotton balls, and I I went to two different spots. And I was thinking, oh man, you you equate that to to America? You know, you spend a night in the ER, you get shipped from one hospital to the next hospital, do all this stuff, and it was forty seven dollars. Damn. <laughs> I'm like, dude, America's ripping motherfuckers off. Yeah, you're like, cool, I got cash. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take care of the whole bill yeah, right no now. no problem. You guys did tip everybody, you know. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was kind of wild. Man. That's a big difference. That's a big difference. I mean, that would have cost, you know, two to two to ten grand. Thousands. Yeah. Well, see, I mean, I've been jumped twice in street fights growing up, and what amazed me was the la- and maybe it was like sympathy or something like that, but it was the lack of of diabolicalness on the 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 part of the guys jumping me because yeah. I remember like falling into a bush or getting knocked into a bush and covering up and dudes just wailing on me from all angles, but nothing was really hitting, you know? Yeah. Like, I was covering up pretty well, and uh, I was thinking, like, why aren't people, like, holding my arms out? <laughs> yeah, stomping just, my know, face like, in. Yeah, like, open me up and actually get good, clean shots well, here. Well, the difference is, and I've been jumped in America, and I've been jumped in a third-world country where they don't give a fuck about life, and over there, they were trying to fucking kill me. Like, weapons rocks, brass knuckles, bottles, a shoe hammer. And <laughs> in <chainsaw>. America, <laughs> it was like everyone was getting their licks in to like teach a lesson because there's consequences. You live you lose the g- great American life by getting locked up and getting all your shit taken in America. Over there, I mean, I couldn't get a fucking cop to look in my direction as I'm running through the streets bleeding everywhere. So, the quality of of life is uh, worth fighting for here in America and worth not fighting for. Over there, they don't give a shit. Yeah. <laughs> Less to lose, I guess. That's a huge difference. Yeah. So you had a – your mom, I hear, was fairly into health and wellness, quality oh, eating, that kind of stuff growing up. So you, you probably had a lot different than I did growing up. Yeah. So Natasha, your your lovely wife and one of my great friends, has actually texted me on occasion to talk about the, the cool things that you guys are doing with, with Bear and, and just getting some advice on things, you know. Uh, I think she was saying she didn't want to make she want to make sure that you know he doesn't fly off the rocker when he gets gets older and and become like a somebody that like tries to indulge all and all the stuff you're bringing away from him. But my family and my upbringing was all about good health. It was you know didn't have immunization shots growing up. Was built uh, born to housewives in in a in a house um, to midwives. Uh, never really used conventional medicine unless like dire needs once I was in college and things like that, like, you know, staph infections and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, it was all about good health and, and, and from the get go. And what I, one of the things that I thought was, was important that I saw from my parents that they did for me, which I'll do for my kids. And I think you guys are doing that as well is creating a sense of pride about what you are. I remember my mom always bragging to us and having a sense of pride about, Oh, we eat healthy. Or we do this and we do that, you know, like, and it's, it's becomes part of your identity on top of what you crave and like. So, you know, wheat, garlic, wheatgrass, carrot, beet juice growing up and millet and honey, honey instead of sugar and olive oil instead of butter and, you know, all these different, different things, sometimes to an extreme. And then also being able to indulge a little bit, but that was a big part of my identity and a big part of me as a person. So yeah, it, it made it a little easier to make the choices then when you left the house. Yeah, you know, I just craved different things. Like for me, I, I, when I when I had, if I were to eat a donut, it would feel really, it would like function really bad in your body, mm-hmm. you know, and and uh, because you're, I was used to such a clean, clean upbringing, and, and it was like our 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 treats for for going and watching movies was like popcorn with brewer's yeast and and you know, different spices and sometimes coconut oil instead of butter, sometimes butter, but then we'd have s- smoothies. That was like 
you know, a nice big treat for us. And that's kind of the things you start to crave. And, uh, and then also the mental toughness of stuff. It was always about treating the cause, not the symptoms. You know, when it comes to medication, it's real easy to, to mask what the hell is going on in your, in your head. You got a headache. There's a reason why you have a headache. Did you hit your head? Are you dehydrated? Are you sleep deprived? Mm-hmm. Are you stressed out? Like, what's the cause of a headache versus there's a headache. You take something. It makes you not feel like you have a headache, but you're not necessarily addressing the problem. So, you know, <clears throat> those kind of things are part of what I feel made me mentally tough, allowed me to, in school and in life in general, be okay with being different because my school lunches were different than other other people's. Mm-hmm. And then also give myself an edge as far as being an athlete or being just general uh, the physique and, and stamina and things like that. I think it all played in. And I, I took a lot of pride in it. Yeah, it's how you, I think Kimbo was saying on the uh, Ultimate Fighter Season 10, why would I want to put... 87 in the tank when I could put 100 octane in the tank. <laughs> Did he you say know? that? How do you feel your body, right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, that, po- that wise man, man. Sorry <laughs> to see him go. <laughs> yeah, he definitely went too soon. <laughs> she also said, as though Tosh is also saying that your grandma is a person of interest, that she's a little oh bit of an old gosh. horn dog. Oh, man, my <laughs> grandma is hilarious. So if my grandma, this is my Italian grandma, full-blood Italian. She's legally deaf, has been since she was a little kid, and... uh and she's really like a big perverted third grader. She's like 83, and she's always making dick jokes and and talking about talking about sex and <laughs> and uh, saying inappropriate stuff, man. And uh, I remember putting, I think I put maybe I put Natasha on the phone with my grandma one time, and I got my grandma going talking about something and then let Natasha listen in. <laughs> but uh she's a friggin' character, man. And her husband, Alfredo, straight from Mexico. He's he's been my only grandfather that I've known on, on, from from her standpoint. Well, they've been married for thirty nine years, but he's seventeen years younger than she is. And she's always bragging about that. You know, <laughs> still they're still doing it. Eighty three <laughs> <laughs> it's good. I got a good, healthy uh, uh, sex drive from my old grandma that got kicked in. Yeah, I bet. That's a <laughs> trickle-down effect, Yeah, right? Yeah, she's a crack-up, man. She's and she's a fighter, too. I, I, I remember my uncle Danny, who's, you know, my mom has two brothers. My uncle Danny said that and my grandma's deaf. So they share a driveway in Santa Barbara, and the front house was rented to like college kids and then my grandma's house was through a gate through a shared driveway and everything else and people would park in front of the gate and she'd always have to get people in there so my grandma lost her temper a couple times and started swinging on some of the college kids and the guys are like whatever call the cops or do this and we'll do that and then my grandma sends my uncle out and he he knows she's a drama queen to go talk to the front neighbors and like danny you know basically like go you know, go get him. Go get him, right? <laughs> and so my 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 uncle knows that she's watching from the house, and he goes up to the he goes up to the college kids, and so he's seeing her look through the window, and and she can't hear anything anyways, and so he's pointing his finger at him, all animated and like talking loud, but he's just saying like, "Hey man, listen to me. Like, no, my mom's crazy. I apologize." I'm acting like I'm real mad at you right now because she's watching. But <laughs> just please bear with her. She's, you know, a bit of a drama queen, et cetera. 
and she's in there watching like her son's showing them who's boss and everything else. <laughs> but he's just appeasing my dramatic grandma. So bless her heart. She's a sweetheart. <laughs> That's awesome, brother. Yeah. It's funny stuff, man. That sounds like you had like a really, I guess maybe like a very good foundation going into all this. Yeah, I did. You know, I had a really, really unique background. So I have that part. My parents, you know, I was born to hippie Christian parents from real early age. Like my, my dad was a born-again Christian, kind of saved my mom, who was a, you know, a hot chick in San, in San Santa Barbara, Southern California, and, and you know, got her all on the Christianity kick. And then they're, you know, living this uplifting kind of like commune life. And then... uh then my mom goes back to you know wanting to be a model and actress and that kind of stuff as as happens in the the hot Southern California chicks worlds and and uh, my dad is doing construction drinking a little bit and they end up getting a divorce when I'm in kindergarten so I start out with this this like real unique like hippie like fun loving environment then you know moved to Sacramento my parents split and it's kind of a rocky breakup my dad is single dad party animal for a couple of years and becomes uh uh you know goes goes to AA and he's going on I think 25 26 years sober now but you know so all his house was like an open house they always had his AA buddies over and it was like a kind of like a frat house type of type of situation and then my mom um you know was doing modeling so she got me and my brothers into acting and modeling and stuff like that but yet we're we're like a mix of all these things like the early christian hippie life now you know, doing modeling and acting as a little kid, and my dad's like a party animal construction guy, and and just getting all these different influences, and um, you know, I got my horn dog grandma who's a pervert, and then my my dad's parents are are immigrants from Holland that are like, you know, my 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 grandfather's a church. I mean, he's a he's a Christian professor for music. So my upbringing is so diverse and weird that it's made like kind of an interesting mix. Which is go follow your heart. That heart happens to be fighting. We're not going to stop you. Go be the best at it. Believe in yourself, et cetera, et cetera. And and uh, you know, it's it's made it kind of a weird mix of 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 cool things that make me me- mesh well with people. You know, so I can hang with Snoop, uh, or That's right, <laughs> yeah, or hang with uh, you know, the other side of the spectrum. Either I I, I can fit in. Hell yeah, brother. Yeah, it's kind of cool. Well, let's dive in a little bit. Staying on the fighting topic, let's dive in a little further because. I brought up the the foundation because a lot of guys come from a shitty upbringing or they come there's there's something in their life that maybe necessarily doesn't sit well with them and they have a chip on their shoulder and that's kind of the spark on why they want to destroy something or or fucking get in the octagon and uh you know it's funny because you know you talk to fans and I'm sure you know having been to the level that you've been at and you've spoken to fucking thousands and thousands of fans there's always that oddness when you're talking to somebody and they're like oh you're fucking an intellectual guy you're fairly articulate you know you went to college and all these things and they kind of have this idea in their head of this meathead knucklehead fighter that maybe necessarily isn't gonna uh it's just not what they expect to come across and i I find that in mixed martial arts in particular there's quite a few guys that either went to college or they were educated i mean dominic cruz is an educated guy and he didn't go to college but same thing you know it's for 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 the love hate relationship you have with Dominic, you got to respect the guy for who he is, not only as a fighter but as a as a human being. He's a pretty fucking good dude, right? So yeah. I think um, it's it it's odd to me. But what I was getting at is, how do you take 
without necessarily going through um, so much adversity growing up, and don't get me wrong, I don't want to say that, you know, uh, I don't want to belittle the divorce or anything like that. It's hard on everybody. But, you know, going into the cage, how do we tackle the mental aspect of that? Yeah, it's it's interesting what you said, and it's true. And and everything's about perspective. When people ask me about my, my upbringing, it was an f- awesome upbringing. I had two parents that loved me. I always had food on the table. You know, we weren't rich, but we weren't, like, you know, struggling so bad that it was, like, couldn't couldn't buy clothes or food. Uh, I, I feel like I have a good life. And then I hear other people that, that kind of, you know, it's all about perspective a lot of times. Mm-hmm. I, I did this, you know, I was talking to a good friend, and he was talking about, oh, I didn't really like his chick. And he's like, oh, you don't understand. He had, she had this happen, she had that happen, she had this happen, and that happened, and this happened, and that happened. And I was like, you know what? I can make my life sound like a sob story, too. My dad was an alcoholic, or my parents split up, or my this happened or that happened. But it's about perspective. And I feel very lucky to have had what I consider a great upbringing. And for me, that's not the edge that I need to get into the, the fight game. What I see as a fighter and the, the guys that I see that have this bravado, and I can spot talent, I can spot champions. It's a self-belief and a confidence that is unshakable. You know, a guy like Conor McGregor, a guy like Chuck Liddell, or a guy like, you know, you name a lot of the best fighters on the planet. It's just a self-belief that, that they've got this, this confidence and they can. So it doesn't become, it's me for my motivation. It's not because of something bad that I went through that I want to beat everyone up. It's for me realizing that in my mind, there should be no one in the world that can beat me up, and I feel like I have this inner inner feeling, just like you or just like anyone else, that says, I want to take my hat off, and I'm going to throw it in the pile and say, I'm the baddest dude on the planet, and I'm willing to get out there and, and see if I'm right. Yeah, I believe it, out. and let's find out. And you have that. I have that. You know, Anybody that throws their, that steps in that octagon, they have that mentality. And and some guys are right, some guys are wrong, and some guys may be right, but the luck doesn't fall in their favor, or life happens, or whatever. But you, you got to have that 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 inner desire to test out and see if you're the baddest dude. And I don't think that always comes from I was beaten by my dad, or I was this or yeah. that. You could draw your motivation from all sorts of different things, you know. So I mean, I, the reason I ask this question is because my motivation changed over time. There was a certain element, and this was not. You know, I don't think this had to do with upbringing or anything like that. But when I first got into fighting, you know, my, my first couple of fights were easy also. We went under 30-second victories, and I was hooked. But there was very much this itch to beat the shit out of somebody. And that was like, that was kind of it. was like, yeah, man, I don't care if I get hit in the face because I want to fuck that dude up in front of me. Yeah. And at some point, that shifted to, I want to do everything I can to be the very best possible fighter I can and push myself to a level that I didn't think was possible, right. you know, and then test that level and test the very best version of myself against the very best version of my op- opposition, that kind of thing. But it sounds like you came in right off the bat with that mentality of, hey, I'm, I'm the best. I'm going to push myself to be the best and I don't care about anything else. I don't know. I, I kind of, it's more of the fact that it wasn't necessarily coming in and saying, I want to be the best. It was me not believing like, I couldn't fathom the idea of that somebody could beat me up. I just was like, there's no way 
someone's going to be able to beat me up. And I that goes for big guys and small guys. I always had that uh, that that mentality where I'm like, there's I just couldn't envision myself getting beat up. And then and then and then it sounded like fun to me, and I had watched it growing up. So it wasn't like I want to. And and this is something that I've taken away from the beginnings of my wrestling in high school and junior high, and when I talk do motivational speeches and things like that, it went from a guy that believes in himself, a guy that works really hard, a guy that you know pushes through adversity and all this agrees for success, which is all good, to a mentality of thinking really big. And I started out just with all the ingredients without the big thought process mm. and wrestling and everything else. So so I think it's kind of backwards once, you know, I didn't realize that I was saying I want to be a world champ. I was just saying to myself, there's no way no one's, anyone's going to beat me up, which is the same shit really, but why not think I'm going to be the champion of the world versus just no one can beat me up because there's a difference. Like yeah, I, There I, is I a big difference there. Yeah, it's one's a goal set and one's just a belief, you know. Once you set a goal, that's a different story. And I learned that from from junior high and high school and college. I, I look back because I used to write down goals. My mom used to have us write down goals and think big and, and do these different things. But why was I not thinking as big as I could? I remember writing down my goals, and the highest I got for my goals in both high school and in college, and I worked up to it, was go to the state tournament, go to the national tournament, and then eventually be an All-American place in the state but I never wrote down and I don't know why I never wrote down be a state champion or be a national champion or go to the Olympics or anything like that I just never did so when I entered in the fight game I started out and had a couple fights and then I wrote down my goals and then I started thinking champion because I remember I beat guys there's there's guys that I beat that were national champions in wrestling and I'm I'm sure their teams and their coaches and their own thought process was they were going to do that, and mine was to be an All-American, not to be a champion. So that's something that that I had to teach myself and learn was just to think bigger, and it happened with, you know, you get a little success and you think bigger, and you get a little success and you think bigger. So, um, you know, it's kind of the same thing, And and it sounded like fun. I was never allowed to fight anybody. You're not allowed to, especially you, big old brute like you, you. You you beat someone up, you're going to fucking jail, dude. <laughs> you know, I I I probably would. I'm not going to smash somebody's skull in necessarily. You lay a big a punch on someone, they're they're you know they're probably going to sue you for for you know or put you in jail. So I mean, there's that side of it where it was the first time I was able to get in a fight and not get in trouble. My mom wasn't going to get mad, and I was actually getting paid for it, and people were celebrating it. And I'm like, yeah, let's give it a shot. You know. So I, there's different motivations, but kind of the same thing. It sounds like fun. I get to get in a fight and not, not hurt anybody or not, not get in trouble. Then not being able to fathom that anybody could beat me up and then turning that into a thought process of I'm going to be the best in the world. You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it's a progression, you know? Most definitely. Yeah, and it happens for the rest of our stuff. Now, now you've got this podcast and whatever else you're working on. You know, you've got your family. You want your family to be the best it can be. And, you know... I'm working on the next phase of my business stuff, and so I've seen success from a from a low level and the power of thinking big on the fight scene, and I'm ready to do that in the next phase of things. And and, and sometimes it's just thinking, you know. Hell yeah. yeah, yeah. Real quick, we'll dive into some of the stuff that you're working on right now, but um, just on that that concept alone, that's something that I talk to when I'm when I'm doing personal training and things like that for people on weight loss. 
is just to want more for yourself. Like it's okay to want more for yourself and yeah. it's okay to picture like for, I, I've had, you know, 300 pound clients that drop 60 pounds and they, they've, they've lost a lot of weight, but they still don't look like you or I with a shirt off. And right. I'm like, you can fucking have a six pack. Like how yeah. bad do you want it? Like it's everyone on fucking earth could have a six pack if that's your goal. And it's not just an aesthetic thing. It's it's like, how healthy will you feel with that extra 40 pounds off? How healthy will you feel when you finish the job? Those kind of things, I think, are, they're only there if you believe they're there, right? Yeah. The guy who holds a belt around his waist, he doesn't fucking win that belt out of pure luck or because he had the best coaches or because he worked the hardest. At, it might be all those things, but at the core of everything is this idea that I'm, I can do this. Yes. You have to have the belief in yourself, right? Yeah, the think big mentality and... And that's for, and, and that's, and, and I'm sure you've experienced it also, and I'm not sure to what level that you realize or thought about it, but just being in the fight space, being professional athletes and, and being able to meet people like, you know, I just had a conversation with Lorenzo Fertito, super cool down to earth guy, Dana White, super cool down to earth guy, and Snoop Dogg, super cool down to earth guy, and, and the list goes on, billionaires and, and, and athletes and all these people, and you see this common thread these successful people in business, in, in family, in music, in entertainment, in, uh, you know, in the fight promotion game. You know, these guys are all, they just have an inner belief. And that's like the common thing is like they, it wasn't like, like they su- were super surprised shit happened. You know, I'm sure they had some, some, oh, wow, I can't believe I did that along the way here and there. But they just knew. Snoop probably knew he was going to be a famous rapper. Believed it in his gut and his heart. Lorenzo knew that he was going to have success in the promotion world. And Dana White knew that, you know, when he was a jazzercise instructor around town and was, like, creating a craze and creating a little business that he was going to do something special and have a lot of success. Like, you know, you got you to gotta believe that, believe that, believe that. And almost even trick yourself. Be, be uh, you know, almost a little unrealistic in, in your thought process. You know, and that's what my mom always had on the fridge. It was... It was dream impossible dreams. When those dreams come true, make the next ones more f- impossible. I remember we had a dirty stained sheet of paper that said that like my entire, uh, my entire childhood. It was always on the fridge, and it, it's just kind of cool to to realize now that that's just the that's the big secret. You know, it's not a secret. You just have to truly do it. Yeah. Well, know? that's that, that's that other part. And Rogan was just talking about this with Dorian Yates. Is that you know, and really talking about the the movie The Secret. Yeah. You can't just fucking wish it, right? Like, the difference is the people that wish it, and they, then they, but they believe in it first, they wish it, and then they fucking do it, right? right? And that's all about the work and putting in work to be there. And obviously, your whole life you put in the work at every level to get to the success that you had in the UFC. Yeah, and, and, and that's the thing that a lot of people, I mean, I get, I get people telling me all the time I need to, to relax, I need to chill out, you know, I'm, I, I have a problem. I don't always sleep as much as I should or whatever, but I'm excited about the things I'm doing and I'm working hard. And I don't think there's a lot of people that can carry the load that I that I can, but the, you know, and and they don't a lot of people times people don't see the hard work behind things that are that are really happening and and this next phase of things since since December I retired and I've been manifesting some things that I want to get into. And it's crazy to me that I've been manifesting, 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 which basically means thinking about it and believing it's going to happen and then seeing things fall into place because that's happened before before to me. But it's not without extremely hard work, 
you know, and and being pretty tactical and, and, and leaning on the right people and things like that, all these other ingredients. But, you know, the thought process is the, is the key to all that stuff. Hell so yeah. It's kinda, let's, it's, let's dive into that. What do okay. you got going on? So you just, you retired, you got inducted in the UFC Hall of Fame. Yeah. Massive crazy. congratulations. Thanks, dude. And uh, what are you working on now? So, you know, I've always, I've always kind of had an, uh, like an interest in the entertainment world. And I've been learning a lot about it over the last seven, eight years with my partner, Mark Schulman, my manager uh, for Three Arts um, Entertainment is where he works. But he's been basically teaching me about how that industry works. How do you get movies funded? How do you get this? And how do you get that? And, and there's not much luck, just like the fight game and everything else. Sure, you got to know some people, whatever. But there's a recipe to this kind of stuff. So I, I, I've, I've been working kind of uh, on a slate of movies had some concepts, had somebody write them, um, had a couple different projects that my manager put together, and, and I I'm, I'm now have like a slate of movies that I'm working on getting funded. Some I'm in, some I produce. Uh, you know, I was just brought on to, to help produce the Kickboxer movie, the third one that they're going to do, the last Wait, one. Kickboxer, I thought they did like 16 Kickboxers. There's the original Kickboxer with Van Damme and the and the and then they the had the, And then they had the dude from uh, Step by Step. Remember that guy, Cody? What was his name? I can't. I thought he replaced him in like Kickboxer Three on. Okay, I I don't know about that. The new Kickboxer series is they just came out with one. George St. Pierre is in it, and John Claude Van Damme. Yeah, I heard about that. Relaunch, and they're about to launch number two, which has everyone under the sun from Ronaldo, the soccer player, to uh, you know the strongest man in the world, to uh, Van Damme, to you know. All sorts of MMA fighters are in the in the thing, so I'm actually going to come on and, and help produce the third movie, which is going to be an awesome, awesome movie. And we're trying to get people from all different walks in the movie, and, <clears throat> and so that's happening here pretty soon. I got another movie that I just I'm a producer on, and, and we got some, you know, it's a lower lower budget thriller that my buddy Jared Roxburgh had had written, and and I was had a little packet ready at the right time in front of a producer and presented it to him and we got some money behind it um i was actually just this is all within like the last six months that these things are starting to come to fruition like since i retired from fighting and i started doing you know focus on other things so there's you know i got a call to be in in the rocks new movie rampage which is like a big budget movie which is fun and so since december i've been in a major motion picture i've been brought on to produce a kickboxer series, uh, a movie, and then a TV show. I got another lower budget thriller that I'm that I'm working on getting produced and funded for, and I've got three other movies that I've been working on over the last five or six years that are in the slate and ready to go. So it's funny because it hasn't just happened all of a sudden. It's been years and years of getting this ready and learning, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, it's coming to fruition. Since I thought it was, well, oh, what are you going to do after you're done retiring? Well, I think I want to get more into entertainment and doing some of this. I get a call to be in Rampage. I get a call from the kickboxer guy, and, and, and I you know meet this producer and present my little package to him. And, and within six, seven months, all of a sudden, I'm in a position where I'm talking to high-level actors, and I'm, and I'm getting financiers behind things. And it's just crazy how fast that stuff happens. And that's, yeah, it's snowballing real yeah, quick. Yeah, and, and, and that's just since December. And, and uh, on top of that, I have 
my gym, <clears throat> which I just launched, which is a scary ordeal, man, because, you know, here I am retiring, being an entrepreneur, and, and you know, as fighters, we make pretty good money. For me, I've been a, a guy. Not everyone. Yeah, not everyone. <laughs> yeah. In a, in a limelight. I mean, even even for me, being a guy that's it's one of the faces, a Hall of Famer, et cetera, it's not a ton of money, you know? So I've always had to be smart throughout the years, and I've had some good years, but uh, I just made this big move to, to build a, a brand-new 20,000-square-foot gym, uh, a creative deal to actually purchase the building, which is scary. I did all the TIs, the tentative improvements on the build-out of the place. So that would normally be paid for by the person who owns the building, but money out of my pocket. And I basically just rolled the dice on on my passion project, building a home for Team Alpha Male, building an inc- incredible facility in Sacramento. I'm trying to do the movie thing. I've got the I've got the the gym and the the real estate going, and I've got my fight team. So I'm like going full speed ahead on on fight, the fight life, entertainment life, and the in the real estate life. And those are the, my three things that I'm focusing on. And how long do you, go back to the gym, how long did you guys have Team Alpha Male in Sacramento where you guys were just renting a space? For 11 years. Yeah, it's been a while, right? 11 years. And you guys have brought in like, I mean, still right now, there's quite a few guys in the top 10 and in the top five in multiple weight classes. Yeah. I mean, it's known as one of the best gyms in the world to train at. Yeah. And I mean, what, what makes you shift? Because, and I'm asking this because I'm going to interview Ryan Bader in a couple of days here. He had power MMA and fitness for six years. I remember training with that guy, you know, in small gyms, LA boxing, stuff like that. While they were trying to find a place, they found an old Bally's uh-huh. Total Fitness, took it over 30,000 square feet, built this mega center that was amazing, rocking and rolling, got a great deal on the lease their first year, didn't have to pay a dime. And then when they went to resign, the guys just wanted to double the rent on them. Uh, so they had to shut the whole thing down. <clears throat> and uh, it, it kind of seems like if you have a good thing going, why change it? And you guys were there for obviously for 11 years. But then also this, this idea that if you own the property, I mean, you look at Ray Kroc and McDonald's, that was a secret right. to everything. Own, yeah. own the land, own the buildings, do whatever you want with it. And then that real estate's never going to devalue, right? Exactly. And, and just like the fight game where you learn, you know, there was no rubric or no straight path with the fight game you had to learn a lot at least in real estate and entertainment there is a ton you know 2003 when i started fighting there's there's no history of our sport so we had to help figure it out and help build it but if you look at real estate and you look at um the entertainment world there's a real recipe for things and you can figure it out with the help and research and things like that so <clears throat> that's a great question the short answer is this <clears throat> The old gym was not a successful thing. Mm. It wasn't a, uh, like it wasn't pouring in cash. It was a great home for my team. And it was a place where we grew this, 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 this organic thing that became one of the best teams on the planet. But the gym wasn't pumping out cash because of location and parking and, and just kind of had been run down. Um, the, the, the real motivation behind it was because I could get in on the real estate deal and because I had the mentorship of the UFC gyms uh, brass. So there's a guy, Mark Mastrov, started 24-Hour Fitness and owns the UFC franchise. I, I became friends with him and Jim Rowley. That's his partner. And then Adam Sedlock, who's the president of the UFC gyms. And, and these guys had approached me years ago to get in on the UFC gym franchising deal and be a part of that and help grow it. 
Um, and in turn, I built a relationship, and they really helped mentor me on what I was doing wrong and what to do in the next phase, which is it's a coach. You know, you got a coach in that situation. Then also on the building standpoint, I got a very creative way to purchase a building. It's a lease to purchase. The guy's 87 years old. Uh, it's a major purchase, but I only had to put a minimal amount down, which is understanding the marketplace and understanding what's happening in the area. And so it's, it was an education process. So <clears throat> the reason why I was able to do it and change it was because of a lot of research, a lot of mentorship, and some, some straight-out risk-taking. Yeah. And it's still a risky thing. It's still a scary thing, but I'm I'm willing to do it. I'm a you know I'm a fighter. I'm a entrepreneur. I'm somebody that rolls the dice. You know, in order to to win big, you got to play big. And so I'm not gonna let my, my myself sink. Although it can be very stressful sometimes. Yeah, it's it's a guaranteed loss if you don't step in the cage. But at least exactly. you have the chance to win if you step in there, right? Exactly. That's it. That's awesome, brother. Yeah, you can't you can't win the fight you never stepped into. So I I, I feel like I've got good mentors and good coaches and good people that I can bounce things off of. But at the end of the day, like risk big, win big. And I'm not a risky, I'm not a gambler, but I'm a calculated risk taker, you know? Oh yeah. So you guys are working also, you, you've mentioned Snoop Dogg a couple of times. Dana White's got his, uh, it's called the contender, the contender series. Is that yeah. Right? Contender series. And that's on, um, UFC fight pass on Tuesdays. Is that correct? Yep. And so they're running, I mean, explain how this works, because they got a, the, the Snoopcast is kind of a, it coincides with that. Is that right? Yeah, so the Snoopcast is an alternative, um, what is it, commentary crew. It's me and Snoop. So Snoop's blazing joints, and we're sipping on some gin and juice and uh, enjoying <laughs> these scraps. We got our own little area, and we're watching every Tuesday five fights. Ten of the most, you know, on the verge, up and coming fighters that are like fighting for their opportunity to get to make their dream happen. So the fights are incredible, and then you've got a hilarious duo, mostly hilarious because of Snoop, that are here watching these fights, you know. And so Snoop's doing his talk, we're naming name naming moves after him, and and getting like a real like not necessarily an amateur perspective, but somebody that's not a seasoned seasoned fighter. Of course, he loves the fight game, but you know you get a real raw perception of like what a what a general, you know, general public dude sees. G pop, general yeah. population. Yeah, right? general population is like, why the heck's he sitting on his butt? Why yeah. didn't he grab his leg? Why did he do this? And so, you know, sometimes you got to break fights down. It gets too technical. You ever see like, I mean, I don't know how many times Joe Rogan is has worried about me and somebody's guard. You know, oh, no, if Uriah's in the guard, he has to really be careful in the guard. And, you know, like <laughs> overanalyzing the fact that I'm sitting on top just elbowing a dude in the face. Like Snoop would be like, oh, man, he's on top elbowing him in the face, you know, yeah. which is what's really happening. Of course, you know, I can add in, well, if he gets the arm over here, this and that. But I like to have a little perspective of like just some common sense, like what am I seeing from a schoolyard perspective on top of, you know, being able to learn and, and him be able to learn. Yeah, and then you have, obviously, you bring the legitimacy yeah. to the show where you have, obviously, countless hours in the cage and you can really break down exactly what's going on Right. to Snoop and to the people watching that may not necessarily know. Yeah, and Snoop's hilarious, dude. I mean, he's he's hilarious. He's, he's singing lullabies and he's, you know. I had him get in the cage and, and I took a film of him 
shadow boxing. He did like a took his shirt off and did like a spinning helicopter kick and landed in a karate stance. And so now anytime anybody does something spinning, we call it he went snoop on him. He's getting <laughs> anything spinning is a snoop move. He's like, I done changed the game, man. <laughs> everybody's fighting straight up now. Everybody's spinning. I brought that to the to the table. <laughs> it's pretty funny. That's awesome, brother. Yeah, it's funny. One last thing I wanted to talk with you about before we get out of here, I got to be mindful of your time, is yeah. uh, Tosh was telling me that you do some work with Native Americans. Yeah, so we have uh, some of my best friends are, are Native Americans, Virgil Moorhead and Poppy's Martinez. And uh, Virgil is actually a, uh, he's uh, got his doctorate. He's one of my buddies that, that, you know, was kind of a troubled guy, lived on the reservation. He's going on like seven years sober at this point and got his degree from UC Davis and he got his master's from Sac State. Then he went to uh, get his doctorate in Michigan and then he's working at Stanford. And so we, we've got a, a nonprofit that we, we raise funds for a lot of different things. And one of them is, is dealing, with, uh, dealing with Native youth, which is the most at-risk demographic in, in the U.S. So... We've done some cultural exchanges and and some you know gone up and talked to the the uh, juvenile halls up up in, on the northern coast and and on top of a couple of other things that we get behind. We have our golf tournament every year. We do some things to run funds for for nonprofit. Yes, and um, and you know just try to do good with it. You know try to make make a difference in in people's lives. And I've always had kind of a uh, like a real good connection with the native youth. That's very cool. What's the name of the tribe that you guys work with? So the uh, the tribe. Well, there's the Tachi Palace is where where uh, Poppy's Martinez is. We've been up there a little bit, but there's the Big Lagoon Rancheria up in up on the northern coast, and that's kind of where we've hosted a couple of things. We did a bear dance, and we did uh, you know a couple of different. Uh, what I can't remember the other group that we brought from from like the Bay Area up to... Was it the Ohlone? I can't remember. Okay. It's been a, it's been a while. Yeah, I've, I've done some work with natives, that's why. But my, mostly my work is not... Uh, it's not... Um, they're helping me more than I'm helping them, put it that way. Yeah, you know, they've, they've taught I believe me. it. I guess that's that's been my, my dive into really just... Uh, not just native culture, but really more into the, the ceremonial space, you know, how to work with plant medicines and things like that in, a, in an cool. appropriate way with respect and reverence. And, uh, so yeah, I know you haven't been down that route thus far, but, uh, Oh, you're talking about what? Like, the, like things like ayahuasca and, uh, yeah, I've heard a lot about that. I know. heard that changing people's life. I was actually talking, I'm always a, uh, stay away from drugs kind of guy. And I always preach that. See, that's funny though, but yeah. hold on now you drink alcohol, right? On occasion, yeah. Yeah, so you've had drugs before. Oh, I've had drugs before. Well, there I, you go. But I, that's, I have that's a little weed on occasion. Yeah, but that's but that's the whole point, though. Is this there's there's a there's a and it's not your fault. It's the way we're brought up. You're you're how well, old are you? Thank you. It's not my fault. How old are you? That. It's not your fault. You're right. <laughs> it's not your fault. But how old are you right I'm now? Thirty-eight. Okay, and I'm I'm thirty-five. Yeah. So you grew up with the Dare program. You grew up yeah. with Just Say No. You yeah, grew up with, I just this is your brain. You. This yeah. is your brain on drugs. Any questions with the fucking yeah, exactly. fried egg in the skillet, right? So, I mean, all that propaganda really does, it drives home a message no different than, hey, you should eat six meals of grains instead of maybe there, it's better to have a little bit more good fat in your diet. Yeah. You know, shit like that. We're seeing a shift between people eating 
a ton of sugar and carbohydrates to maybe a higher fat, higher fiber so, diet. So I got to meet your son, Bear, not too long ago, and Natasha and I, uh, finally, I've been wanting to meet Bear. He's he's a stud, by the way. What a cute kid. And, and Natasha and I got to uh, talk about this, and she was making the case for for hallucinogens and this and that. And I'm like, okay, ayahuasca, I've heard some good things about it. Uh, she was saying that, that it's been kind of therapeutic in, in a lot of ways. Oh, that's an understatement, but yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and which is cool. And then I get into other other things, and I'm questioning like LSD and those kind of things. Yeah, well, I mean, these are all, they're all tools, right? And, and LSD you could certainly party on and have far less consequence in terms of, I mean, let me put it this way. Anything has has a dosage range, and it's going to have different effects at low doses versus high doses. Right. I've There's OD'd, a lot of I've OD'd on uh, alcohol before. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I had an edible really once that, that just about made me call the cops on myself. Yeah, send you into fucking outer space. Like, <laughs> yeah. when will it end? It yeah. keeps climbing. It keeps yeah. climbing. Right. Yeah. Well, I can tell you right now, from personal experience, that nothing has given me more fear than a high dose edible, and I'd much rather have a high dose of psilocybin mushrooms or ayahuasca than a high dose of THC. Yes, I've never done ayahuasca or, or I've never done mushrooms, I've never done anything really. Yeah. So I mean weed. I think I think part of the, the thing is too, like when you're when you when you talk about these things and psychedelics in particular, the you you know, a lot of tech guys are doing microdoses for of L S D and psilocybin for creativity and things like that. And that would be subperceptual where you don't see anything, you just feel and you think different. Things like that. And then obviously you could take a mega dose and and you know, leave your body and see some things, and that can be good or bad depending on your mindset going into it, what your intention is, and your environment. Are you in the right space? Are you in nature? Do you have a watcher or a guide? All those things. And uh, but really, I mean, what I was getting at with ayahuasca is there's an element to it that's not fun. You yeah. puke, you shit like a madman. I mean, and you don't always puke, you don't always shit like a madman, but la purga is the purge, and there's a lot of work that goes into those ceremonies. So the chance of addiction to something like that, I think, is is near impossible. I mean, it, it even tastes bad. It tastes like the most bitter root tea. It's it's about a shot glass worth. You know, you might have two or three in a night. But you know, the what I'm alluding to is that this idea that you could get hooked on something like that is nearly impossible. I mean, I don't even think hooked about it. My whole thing, like you said, dare all that. I'm like, I'm pretty pretty dead on on listening to like your like what what i was told as a kid and, and i get ingrained like i don't like mayonnaise i don't even remember eating mayonnaise i just don't like it you know and there's a couple other things like that my mom was like this is the devil that's the devil and so i am ingrained. <laughs> she's like bit. she's yeah. like bobby boucher's mom yeah, the exactly. water boy that's like, the devil bobby yeah, mayonnaise is the devil <laughs> so i mean honestly like you know i at risk of being, I don't want to say I'm closed-minded by any means, because I've, I've, I've done, you know, tried marijuana. I'm not like a big-time pothead or anything. I just, I feel like it doesn't help me with what I'm trying to accomplish, even though it's a lot of fun if I were to do it on occasion. Um, but, uh, and I like to drink on occasion, but I'm just a busy guy. Now, I did look up when Tasha and I were talking, because she was, she was hitting me hard with the, with the, all the pros of, of hallucinogens. And I'm like, I could. I said, hold on, LSD, and I googled it, and it said in there that it can have like permanent altering things. Now that to me is scary, and let me tell you why. My brother went away to college, never had done any drugs or anything. Got in a highly stressful situation, part of a cult, uh, a, a 
you know, Christian-based cult called the International Church of Christ, the Boston Movement, and lost his mind. Which, which you know, we Is have that from drugs or religion. It was from, from, it wasn't from drugs or religion. It was from stress, and it was from yeah. uh, an altering of sleeping less and and guilt. Oh guilt yeah, guilt will fucking do it. And and eating less and 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 just stress, right? And so it brought on. But I mean, I saw a man changed, and it affected his whole life, and he's doing great now. But it was you know, a whole decade of just taking away his life. And so the mind is is very malleable and very fickle, and I don't really want to fuck with it. Yeah, well, I, I can see that. You know what but I mean? let's go back to this LSD thing. So what you read was, was more propaganda, and I'll tell you why. What did, Norm, well, Norm MacDonald. It said, it said Wikipedia. Okay, so it was Wikipedia, so I don't know if it was yeah, propaganda. Some, some clown wrote it. So, yeah, but, but what it did say is that it's less dangerous than alcohol and then all these other things. But it just had one part that said, there could be a permanent effect. Right. So Norm Macdonald has a bit on Netflix. You got to watch it. And I don't want to okay. give away the joke, but basically he said, uh, I won't, he's I won't an, be able to watch it. So he's an, all right. It. He says he's a <laughs> spoiler alert. If you guys can fast forward this, if you want to watch this Netflix special, it's fucking awesome. But, uh, he's talking about how he's an economical drug user. So he's like, wait a minute. You're telling me I can spend $5 on a hit of acid. And 20 years later, I'm going to get high again. <laughs> all right cool so he does it and he's like you know that was that was 30 years ago so uh unfortunately it didn't happen and that's that as it turns out is just a lie from big acid to try to get more people hooked on acid well, obviously you know the, the the pun's in there but i mean you it's, sounded like it. that was a good impression actually i'm terrible but uh he's you know he brings up a point that that you know, there is that idea like, oh, shit, man, am I going to be permafried or am I going to lose my mind 20 years from now and go deep while I'm driving my family in the car? Yeah. And it's not true. And there, the beauty is science. I mean, you don't have to take my word for it. Yeah. And I don't want to sound like uh, I'm a pusher here trying to get you on the train. <laughs> but uh, well, I have some more to say. after. Science, science is going to catch up to this shit as we start to understand that these have the power to, he to help people. And, uh, you know, Rick Doblin was a guy I interviewed from the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And he's doing a lot of work on soldiers with PTSD and, you know, different groups of people and demographics that actually are going through some real shit. And none of the traditional models of Western medicine are working for them, but they're finding that psychedelics can have a profound impact on their life positively. And so one of the things that they studied at Johns Hopkins University with, uh, I think, Roland Griffiths is the name of the professor there that runs their program for psychedelic research. They took cancer patients that were terminally ill and so they're going to die no matter what and they gave them a fairly strong dose of psilocybin mushrooms and it didn't cure their cancer but what it did is 80 percent of them no longer feared dying so however long they were going to live out their life they had let go of that fear of death and they were able to enjoy the rest of their life and that brought quality of life back to them for the remaining days that they had that's pretty cool i went to school for human development and it's a trip because there's a class that I took where you read the result that is um, referenced in an article. Like, it is proven that this happened here, blah, blah, blah. Then they would have an assignment where you go and read the actual study and see exactly what's going on. And then you look at the motivation behind the person holding the study. 
Who's funding them? What are they trying to prove? What's mm-hmm. their theory, etc.? And so, all those things where you where you take a look at different studies like that, it's hard. It's hard to say like w- the, the conclusiveness. Like if something's forty fifty one percent versus forty nine percent, you can say it had a result. If it's forty nine versus fifty one, you can't. And like there's things like that. And then you look at the actual research and they go, oh well, it could have maybe snubbed it here and pushed it here. And this guy had his agenda and things like that. So. Uh, my, my my whole thing is this. I've been around in a small town, and then in college, I've seen a lot of people do drugs. And I've seen it ruin some people's lives. Fuck yeah, same here. Yeah. Like I've lost I've friends it, to heroin. Yeah, I've lost friends to drugs. I've seen, you know, guys, you know, and, and of course, and this is what I, you know, I'll say this to Natasha also, and you guys aren't messing with, I don't know if you are or not, but cocaine and and heroin and things like that so you you know these are more natural based things that you're that you're doing so it's different but nonetheless you know i've seen i've i've seen one of my 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 intelligent buddies who's now a lawyer and has a family and he's doing great but i've seen him be my roommate and have he was slanging coke so he had it all the time and i saw him go through a cocaine induced psychosis paranoia hearing voices Taking all the doorknobs off of our houses in the in, in the in the house, taking the 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 mirrors off the wall, putting a deadlock on the door, coming and crying to me about about you know that the world is ending and don't don't you know that this is happening? That is happening. Me having to talk him off a ledge, him having to drop out of school and spend a month just crying in bed. You know, I've seen this shit happen. And and whether whether you start with whatever drug it is, for me, I just like you know being present. For me. Oh no doubt, you know what I no mean. Doubt. So, so I, I, and I'm, and I'm not a closed-minded guy. I, I, I I've, you know, I'll, I'll you're, do things. You're in a good space mentally, so, exactly. So, and it, and it could have benefit for everyone, no doubt about it, in my mind. But, but I, th- I like what you bring up here because you know, I sold coke in college. I did a fair amount of it. I did it <laughs> early on in my career as a fighter, and basically the way I look at it now, because. The fact of the matter is everyone's going to call these drugs, whether they're psychedelics, whether they're plant-based, whether they're man-made chemicals, they all get lumped in the category of drugs. But the rule of thumb is, do you feel good the next day? Is there a lasting wellness? Is there peace inside you? That's, if if I have that, then I know it's a good drug. If I have a little bit of cannabis. It's probably different for everybody. Oh, it is different for everybody. But there, and there's a right way and a wrong way to do anything, right? It's about respect and intention and learning and putting in. You know, you don't just step into the octagon one day with no experience and no thought going into that. You train for it. You train everything going into it. You train your mind for it. You put in the work on all the necessary things that go into that. And same thing goes for one of these heroic doses of psychedelics. You do your homework. You read. You make sure that you have a guide or a sitter and all those things like I was mentioning. But most definitely a right way and a wrong way. But when you do these things correctly, there is a lasting peace. There is a lasting wellness. And that's, I think, the biggest difference in what in my opinion is a good drug versus a bad drug. Yeah, and and you know what I like about what Tosh was talking about and I feel like you're doing the same thing. You know, she's kind of cited as a, a like a little bit of therapy and, and you know, I know Natasha well and I've heard her story and everything and and I feel like I mean, she's been able to overcome some things because of it, which is awesome. Um and it's also got to be what's your intent because a lot of times people are doing drugs to mask things, not to figure things out. Yeah. You know, it becomes a dr- it becomes you know, you're 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 trying to mask, just like I was told not to do from from a medicine standpoint. Treat the treat the cause, not the not the symptom. So, 
if if your purpose is I'm doing this, I mean it's all about the mindset. I'm doing this to help myself get over this and get over that and get in this and get get that. I mean that's a whole different animal than mm-hmm. than trying to mask intention. <laughs> yeah, yeah, intention. So I I can see that as well. Hell yeah, brother. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for fucking joining us. I'll definitely try to get you back on here. Yeah, man. In like uh, four to six months and and catch up with you, see what you're up to. Hell yeah, brother. But where can people uh, Where can people follow you on Twitter, Instagram, all uh, that stuff? I'm most active on Instagram. It's Uriah Faber. Uh, just Uriah Faber. And then Snapchat, Uriah Faber 1. Instagram or uh, Twitter is Uriah Faber. Everything's Uriah Faber. Facebook. That's it. Cool, awesome, man. Brother. Hey, I, it, was good, it was good hanging out, man. It's about time. Hell yeah, brother. All thank right. you so much. You got it. I want to thank you guys for listening in today to uh, Uriah Faber and uh, welcoming it as the new host for the Onnit podcast. And I'd also like to bring up a wonderful product that I take from Onnit called Shroom Tech Sport. It has adaptogens and cordyceps synesis, which is a mushroom that is an amazing product that helps the body with ATP production as well as oxygen utilization. That means you're going to be able to work out harder and longer. It also is caffeine-free. So even though I like to work out with a little bit of caffeine in my system, I can do that with a different product, like some good optimized coffee, and then throw the, the wonderful Shroom Tech Sport in on top of that. The fact that there's no caffeine in it also helps me if I'm going to have a late workout and I don't want to be up all night after the workout. You know, For people who are just pressed for time and really need to get a good hard workout in, a lot of the best jiu-jitsu classes I attend are late at night. And uh, you want to have the best workout you possibly can, but you don't want to be up until midnight or 2 a.m. because of the fact that your pre-workout contains caffeine and other stimulants. Shroom Tech Sport is the one that's right for you. Check it out at onnit.com THO for a discount.